Last year, I preached a sermon inspired by Francis DeWall's fascinating book, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. Because, you know, uh, you know to spoil the ending, we're animals too, right? So our, animal, our emotions might tell us something about animal emotions and vice versa. At that time, I promised that I would preach a sequel to that sermon about animal intelligence that's based on another of DeWall's books that has the wonderfully provocative title, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Sometimes we have been, sometimes we haven't been. This is that promised sermon with one important twist. There's another related book that I read in the meantime that was just too interesting not to share with you, so I'm going to add that at the end. For now, let me begin by briefly reintroducing uh, Dr. Francis DeWall for those who may not be familiar with him. He's a professor of primate behavior uh, in the Department of Psychology at Emory University in Atlanta. And in 2007, Time voted him one of the world's 100 most influential people today. And he has published many paradigm-shifting books, including Chimpanzee Politics. I'm sure that seems, you know, quite relevant, actually. Uh, Peacemaking Among Primates and the Bonobo and the Atheist, about his relationship with apes. The worldview that DeWall is inviting us to explore is deeply Darwinian. One of Charles Darwin's most essential insights was that all life on this planet is descended from a common ancestor, you know, adding in a few billion years of evolution. We humans were not spoken into existence in a one-time special act of creation. We are not a little lower than the angels. We are a little higher than the apes and deeply interconnected with the systems of this planet. Sometimes this discovery has been received as devastatingly bad news or even heretical. But this evolutionary worldview can also be received as inspirational good news. We humans are not separate and alone. We are part of the animal kingdom. We are deeply interconnected to the environment, the ecosystems, and the other beings on this planet. We aren't just placed here and here to use things up you know, in any way that we see fit, at least not without consequences. It's what our UU seventh principle is all about, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Here's one way Darwin put it in his 1871 book, The Descent of Man. The difference he wrote in mind between man and higher animals, great as it is, is certainly one of degree, not of kind. So how, we, how mind relates in animals and humans is a difference of degree, not of kind. And there's a growing body of scientific evidence supporting this claim that there is this spectrum of consciousness, this spectrum of thinking and feeling that extends throughout the animal kingdom and likely well beyond. Mary gave us some great examples of um, bacteria, uh, you know, going all the way down to kind of sing single cellular organisms. And in previous years, we've also explored the more rudimentary sentience of plants and trees and mushrooms. And I, as much as I would like to, cannot revisit all of that today. But suffice it to say that if you haven't read Peter Volhaben's The Hidden Life of Trees, I recommend it as a tremendously interesting place to start. How many of you have read The Hidden Life of Trees? All right, I see quite a few hands out there. Uh, or uh, any Ted Lasso fans out there? 
All right. Uh, if any of you noticed on the last episode of Ted Lasso, Coach Beard was reading The Entangled Life. I don't know if any of you noticed that. That was the book that we drew from for the sermon about mushrooms and mycelial networks um, last year, The Entangled Life. And while I'm making recommendations, I'll also mention the excellent documentary film, My Octopus Teacher, that's streaming on Netflix. Any My Octopus Teacher fans out there? All right, a few hands for that one as well. Uh, really, really interesting. As we proceed, it's helpful to keep in mind that although Darwin was a proponent of animal intelligence way back in the 19th century among most scientists, the idea of animal intelligence was really considered an oxymoron until well into the 1980s. One of the reasons was that the behaviorist psychology of B.F. Skinner was just so dominant throughout most of the 20th century. This approach to studying animals emphasized conditioning based on a fairly simplistic model of stimulus and response. And we learned a lot from that, but it's not the only tool in our scientific toolbox. And over the past few decades, over the 90s and into the 2000s, the tide has really turned. Along these lines, I love DeWall's confession that often discoveries about animal intelligence have been less these kind of eureka moments, these sudden bursts of insights, and just these observations that slowly, you know, think of Jane Goodall, these observations that slowly observe from spending just tons of time with animals in their natural environment. They, it's really about periodically finding yourself saying something like, you're watching an animal and you're like, that's funny that <laughs> they just did that. And then following that up with experiments and data and, and observations and finding pathbreaking ways to study animals on their own terms. You know, this whole idea of like, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Think about the difference between, we've often compared humans and animals. We have like a human child sitting in its parents' lap and being encouraged. And then we test animals the same way, but we have an ape sitting across from the scientist behind a mesh wire instead of being in its mother's lap and surprise it doesn't do as well on the test. Now there are different aptitudes too, but how do we set animals up to succeed on their own terms? Are we smart enough to know and discover how smart animals really are? Uh, as Mary mentioned as well, as well as Nicole, if any of you are pet owners, I have two dogs and two cats, you know, I can think of many examples when I found myself saying, that's funny when animals do something surprisingly intelligent, surprisingly emotional. Animals do the darndest things, if you watch closely, including us, we human animals. DeWall's book is filled with many more examples than I can even uh, mention, but I'll just give you a few representative cases. One of the earliest impressive examples of intelligence in apes was a chimpanzee with no previous training who wanted to get to a banana. And how did he figure out how to get to that banana? There were four boxes in the room. He stacked those four boxes up and he got to that banana. He figured out a way to do it. This is one of many instances of animals coming up with creative solutions to problems and engaging in unwaveringly purposeful action until they solve that goal as accomplished. Uh, a more fun example happened at a zoo in the Netherlands and has become infamously known as the Great Escape at Burgers Zoo. A group of apes, again with no previous training, picked up a fallen tree trunk that was far too heavy for any of them to carry alone, so they had to somehow communicate and cooperate. They leaned that trunk against the wall of their enclosure one night, climbed up it, and 25 of them feasted on everything they could find at the nearby zoo restaurant. 
If those chimpanzees had been brought into a court of law, I suspect there would have been sufficient evidence to prove premeditation. That crime was planned beforehand. Perhaps they had, we don't know, but maybe they had smelled the food and they were like, I want to get to that. I see all these humans eating food. I want to try that out. If we turn our attention from the land to the sea, we regularly witness animals similarly um, cooperate. Orcas are a, a really interesting example, sometimes called killer whales. Often when a group of orcas spots a tasty looking seal floating on a piece of ice, they will swim at high speeds of that ice in perfect unison to create a wave to splash that seal right off the, you know, right off the ice and into one of their waiting mouths. And scientists don't yet know exactly how they coordinate these attacks, but the precise synchronization of these orcas and how it allows them to um, create a exactly kind of sized uh, wave seems strong evidence of intelligence, communication, planning. It also used to commonly be said that animals don't use tools, but now we have decades of evidence to the contrary. We have many different species of animals regularly using tools in a wide variety of ways. According to recent estimates, chimpanzees use between 15 and 25 different types of tools per community. It depends on their cultural and ecological circumstances. They're, they do figure out what they need. Beyond primates, there are fascinating studies of crows using tools. To give you just one example, the new Caledonian crows, crows spontaneously modify branches until they have a little wooden hook perfectly designed to get a, um, to get a fish grub out of whatever crevice it appears to be stuck in. Also noteworthy is that just as different ones of we human beings are good at different things, not surprisingly, individual animals of various species are also differently good at different things. These variations in aptitude and ability are due, of course, to a variety of causes and conditions, nature and nurture, just like we humans. For instance, like humans, some chimpanzees have greater emotional intelligence. Others have greater kinesthetic intelligence. Still others have greater cognitive intelligence. So since we're focusing on animal intelligence today, I'll give you just one particularly intriguing kind of standout example. A little more than a decade ago, a young male chimp named Ayumu at Kyoto University in Japan repeatedly displayed a trait that in humans is sometimes called photographic memory. Trained on a touchscreen, he could recall a series of numbers one through nine and tap them in the right order, even though the numbers appeared very briefly on the screen and randomly and were replaced by white squares as soon as he started tapping the first one. So he had to remember it photographically. Dr. DeWall and most humans who have tried this same experiment can typically not get past five. This chimpanzee can get to nine. Scientists are also getting more skilled at testing animals again in ways that are more on their own terms. So I think there's a lot more. That's, we're getting smarter about learning how smart animals are. So I think there's a lot more to come. The upshot, though, is that this is the trajectory that a growing consensus of scientists are agreeing on regarding this giant tree of life that, that Mary referred to earlier, you know, that has branched out over billions of years into the wild variety of species on this planet and forms of life. Every cognitive capacity that we discover is going to be older and more widespread than we used to think. 
every capacity is older and it goes farther back toward a common ancestor than we used to think. So in general, regarding sentience and consciousness, intelligence and emotions, and how far these traits descend and go back down the tree of life, science is increasingly favoring continuity over discontinuity. Now, having explored some of these latest discoveries about animal intelligence, I want to pivot to the related book I mentioned earlier. And just to say one final thing, to me, that sense of continuity, it's, it's really powerful. I mean, it's, it really can give you this existential sense of being part of that interdependent web of life, not this isolated ego, but deeply part. It can be a really beautiful way of being in the world. So let me tell you more about that, that book as we move into the, the second and final part of this sermon. Uh, I heard about it on a podcast called Witch Please. I'll be, anybody, Witch Please? It's really interesting. Uh, it's hosted by two f feminist academics who are rereading the Harry Potter series through the lens of various academic ideologies. So they reread Harry Potter, like one week will be through the lens of Orientalism, and then one week through classism, and the next week through queer theory, and the next week through disability studies, and structuralism, and so much more. It's accessible, it's hilarious, it's, it's really well done. It's a really good like intro to grad school for, for anyone uh, going soon. Which please. Uh, and it, on their episode about animal studies, they recommended a book called Racism as Zoological Witchcraft by um, Off Co. And I know, who has read that book? I know, I've heard from like three of you that have read that book, and that's just well done. <laughs> Those of you who have already read that book, uh, like it's just all, it just came out in 2020. So let me know, the few of you who have let me know you read that book, how you heard about it, because I'm interested to know. Uh, Ofco is the founder of an organization called Black Vegans Rock. Coe's book is an interesting way of reflecting on the implications of taking seriously uh, animal intelligence, animal emotions, as well as what our UU Eighth Principle commitment calls actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. As a black woman vegan, Co has spent significant time in the various struggles for justice and liberation. So she has the, you know, have really observed the ways that often justice movements can really be siloed and everyone's just kind of doing their own thing, what is sometimes called like competing oppressions. And here's where Coe's perspective really gets interesting. She is skeptical of the typical advice that we just need to get more intersectional. And intersectional is just a fancy word for the word intersection. So it's like, just think about a traffic intersection. So it says, we just need to be more intersectional. We need to look at where these oppressions intersect. So act at the intersection of race, class, gender, ability, sexuality, other oppressions that can keep us divided as a species. Although intersectionality is often well-intended, Coe says that from what she has seen, the result tends to be social layerism. We don't actually intersect, we just keep laying these things on top of one another. And I think that's a really, really smart observation. Activists tend to mention more and more oppressions in the same sentence, but the oppressions, we don't ever get to the actual relationship with each other part. So far beyond merely working in coalition across differences, like we don't actually have a relationship with each other, but we're going to strategically agree to work in coalition. She's like, more is possible beyond that, even though that's a good thing. 
She says, and there's a deeper connection, and I think this has become obvious to her. Like, it just really, this really bothered her, I think, because her embodied existence as a person who is simultaneously black, a woman, and a vegan has just been really like, I see how these things relate to me in a way that isn't just social layerism. And she's been really working to articulate the deeper underlying source out of which social justice concerns emerge. Her book is quite short and accessible, so you can check it out if you want the full details. I'm going to give you just two uh, examples that were particularly striking to me. First, Coe challenges her fellow activists in the animal rights movement, the vast majority of whom are white, that they may never really get the widespread um, system-transforming results they are seeking as long as they primarily focus their activism only on non-human animals, what's sometimes called speciesism, right? How we uh, only care about our own species, some of us. Instead, she challenges animal rights activists to learn about white supremacy's appetite for flesh and power from how enslaved black people were treated like animals. So she wants animal rights activists to not miss that it's about this bigger thing, white supremacy's appetite for flesh and power from how enslaved black people were treated like animals. That how animals were treated has been a concern of black studies for a really long time, long before Peter Singer wrote Animal Liberation and coined the term speciesism. She's right, she's like, you're missing like a century plus of work in black studies if you think this has just been started talking about by animal studies in the late 20th century. It's really worth thinking about that the work for animal rights can potentially be much deeper and broader and more effective in the long term if it is engaging with the larger project of dismantling white supremacy culture. As Darwin taught us, we human beings are also animals, and the way we human animals have often treated non-human animals is under this larger umbrella of how we human animals have sometimes treated other human animals. It's all about how we treat animals. In the larger struggle for collective liberation, the work of animal liberation and why non-human animal lives have and haven't mattered historically is deeply interconnected with the work of black liberation and why black lives have and haven't mattered historically. Coe also shares an important caution that often white animal rights activists tend to approach anti-racism activists in a way that makes people of color feel like they're just being asked to add the struggle for animal rights as one more burden to the systemic oppression they already carry every day without really getting a sense that most anti-racism activists, with a few exceptions, are really invested in anti-racism. So it's like they have have animal rights activists, have you really done your work around racism? And that might make your case more persuasive. For her, she says, as far as she sees it, the goal should center on getting anti-racist movements to talk more about animality rather than trying to create strategies to get people of color to join the dominant animal rights movement as it currently exists. To say more about how we might begin to pull all this together, Coke quotes a fellow scholar, Claire Jean Kim, a professor at the University of California at Irvine, who says that for animal studies and for feminist studies too, the path forward goes through and not around black studies. The path forward to really getting this done at the systemic level goes through and not around black studies. That insight is strongly related to our UU8th principle that if 
as we get really serious about dismantling white supremacy culture, we will find in the process that we have made a lot of progress on many of the other interlocking oppressions because we will have begun to get at the root of a toxic culture of why did we need to dominate one another in the first place? Why did we only find our self-worth if we're better than others instead of being part of this interlocking whole and right relationship with one another? The second example I want to share from Co flips the perspective. Here she challenges her fellow anti-racism activists to see that veganism is about a lot more than one's diet, just eating lower on the food chain, and decreasing harm to animals, as important as all those things are. At a deeper level, veganism, she says, is about rejecting a politics that characterizes animals and non-white people as disposable and consumable. That's worth thinking about. Veganism, at a deeper level, is about rejecting a politics that characterizes animals and non-white people as disposable and consumable. So how then do we move, both individually and collectively, towards ways of being in the world that are more ethical, more sustainable, and more in right relationship with ourselves, the planet, and all living beings? There's a lot more to say about that, and I'm not saying that Co has, you know, that she's figured it out, that she has the only way forward for collective liberation. But I think she's doing some important work, and you know, I'm looking for other people who are doing that kind of deeper work. I sort of see she's looking for the plate tectonics. A lot of people are like kind of here looking at the surface, and she's really trying to get to those plate tectonics that are, that are way down there deep. Um, so I, I find what she's doing quite, quite compelling. In that spirit, may we each do all that we can within our spheres of influence to decrease suffering and greed and cruelty, to increase freedom and compassion for all sentient beings. In the words of the Buddhist loving-kindness um, meditation, may all sentient beings be filled with loving-kindness. May all sentient beings be peaceful and at ease. May all sentient beings be free. As we continue to reflect on how we feel led individually and collectively to live together with our fellow living beings on this fragile and beautiful planet, let's listen together to Blue Boat Home. <laughs> 